What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got the most special guest I think we've had thus far. <laughs> um, and why I say that is because Karina, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it vividly. You were my very first coach. You were my very first individual when I got into USF in a study that taught me what the fuck macros are or were. And I remember (laughs) I went out to eat and I texted you. I was like, yo, I just blew everything out. Um, I don't know what to do. And you're like, you know, just get your protein in and try to, you know, stay under your calories and stuff like that. But I was like, okay, I have no (laughs) idea what I'm doing actually. So uh, Nina is kind of, crazy to honestly see myself in the position where I'm at now kind of educating other individuals. So I just want to say, I appreciate you for opening that door for me. And, you know, now you being my coach or and still, she's the number one person I'll go to if I need to make weight for anything or just say, Hey, Adam, you're, you're looking fat. Nina, help <laughs> me out, hold me accountable. Um, so again, I appreciate you bringing me into, you know, this coaching realm and now uh, being on our podcast, but for those individuals that don't know who you are, could you go ahead and please introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to first start out with saying it's, it's been very cool to watch you grow and like just the knowledge that you've accumulated over time within the program and seeing you go get your PhD. But I'll go ahead and introduce myself. So I'm currently a master student at the University of South Florida. I'm um, in the Department of Exercise Science. Right now, I'm primarily under the mentorship of Dr. Bill Campbell, and I'm also an online nutrition and training coach with Team LocoFit. Um, pretty much do online programming for general population individuals, as well as competitive bodybuilders, powerlifters, and I have some CrossFit athletes um, under my uh, coaching supervision as well. And then I'm also a research assistant uh, outside of the exercise science department at University of South Florida. I'm also a research assistant at the pharmacology and physiology laboratory at the Morsani College of Medicine, which is the medical school at USF and USF Health. And then kind of just like sports background, I grew up playing soccer for like 12 years. And then um, at the end of my soccer career, I discovered bodybuilding and I got really uh, kind of enthralled in, in weightlifting. And so after I competed in bikini and figure for a few years, then I moved on to powerlifting because I kind of got tired of being hungry all the time and I just wanted to be strong. And then after I got tired of powerlifting, I now do CrossFit. So I tell people all the time, I feel like I have like fitness, like ADD, like I can't like just pick one. I'm kind of always bouncing and wanting to just be an all around uh, well-balanced athlete. I think that's cool because you have now different experiences at different sports at different levels. Um, And from our personal relationship, you've had some crazy lows from your years of dieting and uh, bodybuilding. And you've kind of are, I think, still experiencing some of that backlash. And I think a lot of individuals can relate to that experience because some people, they come to us and we all experience it. That's like, hey, I want to start a fat loss phase. And we look at the amount of calories you're eating, you're just like, okay, so you're already high stress, you're already all this, this, and this, and you want me to add more stress to it? It's probably not the answer. So, um, however, before we kind of get into, you know, your dieting experience and stuff like that, I just really want to highlight your research experience because 
you just named off two, three labs that are phenomenal labs. I know you've worked with uh, a lot of uh, ketosis and NASA. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, I would say if the two kind of main circles of research that I'm in are exercise science, kind of very big picture human research base. And then I do a lot of mechanistic work as well, more on like the medical side. Um, but it's also ultimately very focused on improving overall health in humans. So the research that I've done at the exercise science department at USF has mainly been focused around um, looking at protein intake in females, um, resistance training studies, uh, comparing training frequencies and volumes and things like that. Um, and then more of the mechanistic work that I've done at USF Health has looked at different nutritional interventions as metabolic therapies in rodent models. So for example, we did um, I would say the research that I was most involved with is uh, rodent model research in which we looked at pretty much breast cancer in mice, and we pretty much fed them different types of diets. One was heavily involved with ketones and kind of seeing how either the cancer cells grew or shrunk over time in these rodent models. Um, and then with that same lab, uh, we've also done uh, human research. So a little bit more bigger picture, kind of moving away from like small cells under a, a telescope, um, looking at body composition changes over a nine to 10 day period um, in a NASA simulation mission. So what NASA does a few times a year is they kind of send their astronauts in our case, they're called aquanauts um, on like practice missions, right? So they try to put them in extreme environments that would be similar to space. And so the mission that I went on was called NASA NEMO 23. And they pretty much put their uh, astronauts and had them live in a submarine underwater for nine to 10 days. And my job in that experiment, there was a ton of things that we tested physiologically. We tested kind of cognitive health, um, heart rate va variability, um, like, uh, stress management and all those things. But I pretty much looked at body composition changes um, for individuals who lived at saturation. So uh, increased oxygen or hyperbaric uh, environments um, at the beginning of those nine to 10 days. And then after kind of seeing any changes in muscle mass and uh, body fat, just based off of the change in, in environment. Um, obviously there are a lot of things that weren't controlled for, like they were eating like space food. So a lot of you know, snacks that are not perishable and things like that. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the uh, total look at the research I've done over the past five, six years now at USF. What I'm really interested about is you have a ton of research experience. Are you planning to take that to a PhD or what are you planning on? Or yeah, okay. You just mentioned UCF before this. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What, that's something that wasn't mentioned on camera um, because I, I am an online nutrition coach and that, that's something I've been doing for this last six, seven years. And for the past two years, I was like, I'm going to be a coach for the rest of my life. I don't want to do research. I've been doing research. But over the past year or so, I've really decided, okay, I, I want to get my PhD. And so that that is my plan, ultimately. And do you know what you want to do your PhD in yet? Or are you still trying to test the waters with it? I'm kind of uh, testing the waters because there's so many different things I'm interested in. I would say it, general field is skeletal muscle physiology and how it relates to our longevity. Um, you know, 
muscle mass and how it relates to how long we live or how little we live. And then also uh, exercise and how it impacts our long-term brain health and cognitive health, um, more specifically for diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm super, it's kind of like all over the board. So hopefully in my PhD, I can decide what the heck I want to do and then do that for the rest of my life. Well, again, so I know you said Nina is kind of neat to, I guess, see me grow and I've, it still doesn't feel real that I'm about to get my PhD, but very similar to you, right? You wanted to do DPT. You almost went into med school or that master's degree. Uh, So walk us through that process because, you know, I was recently uh, talking to a friend from middle school that she's at her own podcast and I was on, she's like, what the hell happened? Like, how did you do it? Or what did you do to do? And I think the overall message I was trying to portray is like, I just wasn't satisfied and I knew I could always do more, but walk us through, you know, that life experience, because I feel like a lot of people nowadays, like they feel stuck and maybe that's what you, how you felt. Uh, but now here you are, is you're controlling your destiny and doing very well and doing something that you love uh, at the end of the day. So walk us through, like, how did you start from health science? Correct. Uh, just biological sciences, biological science to wanting to do those two professional schools um, to now here you are about to get your PhD. Yeah. So um, I think it's a very common feeling after you graduate from undergrad, um, maybe without like a direct plan after is like, what do I do? Um, and so I had always been an online coach since I would say 2015. And I never saw that as something that would I would be doing up until I was like 40 something, right? So I, I, I think the practical side of me was saying, okay, you need to set yourself up for something that you can provide yourself with a sustainable life long-term. Um, and so at first it was either, okay, I really enjoy health. I really enjoy exercise. I really enjoy biomechanics um, and things like that. And so it was between maybe I want to be like a physician, or maybe I want to be a doctor of physical therapy. So at one point I was exploring, uh, applying to physical therapy schools. And then I kind of decided like, I feel like something's missing with kind of this realm of profession because I'm very heavily interested in, um, just like health physiology, nutrition, and medicine. And I think that that is a, a really great profession. Um, those people do amazing work with allowing, athletes, individuals to return to play, to return to activity and all those things. But I I didn't feel like it was for me. And so then I decided, okay, maybe I I need to go into medicine. And so I was about to start a master's program at USF for biomedical sciences. And then I decided, um, I, I, I think something else is missing here. So I wanted to kind of get back to my exercise science roots. And so I've kind of found myself in a position where okay, I think the best option for me, and then also the easiest, if I'm being honest, because it was right there, was exercise science program at USF under Dr. Campbell, which also happens to be the most perfect program for individuals like myself who either, I don't know if I want to be a coach or I don't know if I want to be a PhD, but that this is the program that's going to be perfectly tailored to both, to building um, some of the t- most competitive online coaches as well as PhD students. So I was like, why not? And so I've kind of found myself in a space where I 
can be in a place where I can still feed both of those needs of exercise science and then also like health and medicine because I'm still involved in both labs. Um, and then I'm moving toward my goal of a PhD with getting my master's. Um, but it, it was definitely, I would say, if I could describe it, it was a lot of trial and error. It was thinking I was going one direction and then kind of realizing, oh, no, that's wrong. And pretty much going through that process twice was kind of painful. And it was like a lot of time delay, but it was ultimately worth it because I learned a lot about myself um, throughout that period. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Cause like it, there was always like something missing and whatever. And I loved, you know, coaching kids. I loved teaching kids, but it was like, I'm teaching shit that I didn't even really want to take in high school. And now <laughs> to be able to think and even say that, hold on, I can teach and research exercise science for the rest of my life. That just doesn't seem real, but I think that's, that's when you say, Hey, I, it's not a job, it's a career and I can, I love it. So um, it's cool to be able to say that. And it's cool to be able to see that you being able to do the same thing um, with literally like the same route and almost with USF exercise science and building that uh, tremendous CV that you've had even inside and outside of that. But uh, let's switch it up a little bit right now, going into a little bit more practical um, experience with, you know, dieting from an individual that, you know, has stepped on stage being really, really lean um, to an individual, I think, and you would probably even agree with now you're looking at more fitness or nutrition as like, Hey, it's got to fuel my performance. So how has both of those experiences gone and what did you learn from, or, or how are, are you still learning from both of those experiences? Yeah. So my experiences with like nutrition and dieting can really be put into two time frames. So at first it was mainly all for aesthetics. Um, my first uh, sport in which involved me to really pay attention to my nutrition was bodybuilding, right? And all they care about on stage on competition days, how you look, how much body fat you have, how symmetrical you are, how much muscle mass you have. Um, they're not really like trying to see how powerful you are, how fast you are, how, how strong you are. So in that sense, um, I really learned, you know, just kind of nutrition as a way to alter body composition. Um, and I will say that my very first dieting experience for my very first show was an absolute nightmare. So I learned everything on what not to do. I pretty much started um, a diet at 135 pounds. And within three to four months, I got down to 98 pounds in a very unhealthy, unsustainable way, which then resulted in me struggling with um, a binge eating disorder for three years after, um, fluctuating all over the place with my weight, uh, really having a hard time uh, maintaining a healthy relationship with food, feeling like I could eat like a normal person um, and being comfortable in my body and feeling like I had any control over my body. So on top of, you know, the binge eating and the stress, I definitely had a lot of, you know, hormones tank. And so it was kind of this cumulative effect of, man, like I have no idea what's going on with my body. And I would kind of attribute it to that, that first dieting experience in which I was under um, the instruction of someone who didn't really know what they were doing. Um, they were just like a very well-known, like old school bodybuilding coach. And they kind of did what worked for most people, but it wasn't tailored to an 18 year old girl at the time. And so then, um, I eventually, you know, did the legwork, uh, learned a lot on the right way to do nutrition from Lane Norton, who is my first boss in the business and my first mentor, and then Paul Ravella, um, who I then moved to for coaching and, and work for. And now I work under Lauren Conlon for Team LocoFit. And my focus now for those who are 
aiming to use nutrition to change their body aesthetically or focus on body composition is, you know, making sure that we're doing things sustainable, making sure that we're doing things in a way that won't set us up for failure long-term, um, being very tailored to your specific lifestyle, maybe your genetics and what you're predisposed to responding well to and not, um, and things like that. And dieting history will also play a, a big part into what you will be able to respond to. And that's kind of where I am at right now. So the history that I have with dieting has definitely affected where I am metabolically today. Um, there's definitely things I could have done a hundred times better that might put me in a better position to have more muscle mass at this point or have a quote unquote faster metabolism. Um, but it's not all doom and gloom. I can use that knowledge and what I understand about our dieting history and how that impacts us today to optimize my nutrition and still live a healthy lifestyle. And now moving toward um, the kind of second time point in which I use nutrition for today is more performance-based. So I moved from bodybuilding to powerlifting to then CrossFit. And now I use nutrition more so to make sure that am I recovering well? Am I eating enough to train once, sometimes twice a day? Um, is my nutrition tailored to the variation in um, fitness needs for the sport of CrossFit. So sometimes it's hundred um, percent aerobic or endurance based. Sometimes we're just, you know, testing the CrossFit um, max, which is deadlift, squat and push press or strict press. Um, or is it just like straight power? So a lot of jumping, a lot of Olympic lifting. And so um, my, I would say the way I utilize nutrition is still very well-rounded in terms of I can, I'm very comfortable in changing it to improve body composition, but I'm a bit, a bit more focused now on performance athletes and then also just overall health and longevity in terms of what we need to eat, how we need to eat to make sure that we're uh, maintaining healthy bodies and things like that. So something you touched on that I'm sure you're aware of, but other people that might not be listening is aware of is what you went through is unfortunately extremely common having a coach that doesn't have the, the correct knowledge or qualifications to really give an individual approach on, on what a, is a very needed basis. Could you elaborate on your timeline after you had went through that? You got to the 98, uh, you said you had uh, some binge eating issues for the few years after that. Um, yeah. But what were some positives and negatives after you hit your lowest point, which was 98? Uh, and then to where you are at now. Yeah. So uh, after hitting my lowest point and getting onto stage up until now, what essentially my life looked like between then is for about two to three years after I really struggled with binge eating because I had kind of gone through a very long period of restriction before then. And it was really hard for me to get away from this all or nothing thinking either I'm going to be perfect on a meal plan, or I'm going to go off the rails. Um, and so that's just not sustainable, but that's what I did for a long time. And so that looked like me reboard rebounding 40 pounds. Um, so getting up to like 130, eventually 160 pounds, um, within a span of like one to two years, which is a very, like for someone who is my size, five, three, five, four, that's a lot of weight to gain in that period of time. It was very uncomfortable. Um, and I would say the negatives were just not feeling like I could have a normal relationship with food ever again, feeling kind of hopeless sometimes in terms of like um, not binge eating 
and not feeling like I could control myself around food, especially in social situations. Um, and then also all the struggles that come with body image, especially at that age, like, you know, between 18, 19, and maybe 22, feeling like, you know, I am not comfortable in my body. Um, I have like no control over what I, how I act around food and things like that. Um, I would say those were the biggest negatives. Um, however, I would say the biggest positives from that point was just everything I learned and everything that that negative experience pushed me to learn about nutrition, to make sure I never do that again, to make sure that we only kind of move towards sustainable practices and that, you know, it, it created me to essentially want, wanting to be a coach to make sure that no one goes through that experience, making sure that we practice sustainable um, dieting practices that won't end up in these yo-yo uh, phases of binge eating and dieting and restricting and things like that. For the negatives, what are some tools that you took away from that experience that if you could tell someone else that's going through it right now or will be in the future, uh, what are some tools to help help them get through those tough times? So what I would say is um, when you're going through something like that and you feel the need, so when you're binge eating and you kind of like hate the way you look in your body and you feel very overweight, what I would say is don't, don't over restrict and don't be too um, aggressive. So a lot of times it's going to be really tempting to just say like, I'm just not going to, I'm only going to eat like half of what I normally eat. You're already setting yourself up for that next binge eating stage. And even though it's going to be super uncomfortable to allow yourself to eat enough, that's exactly what you need to do to mitigate the next binge eating episode, because it, you're going to eventually end up much better consistently eating enough than under eating and then setting yourself for another setting yourself up for another binge eating episode. So it's, I would say the greatest tool or most important takeaway from that part would be, even though you're a little bit uncomfortable with how heavy you might be from all the accumulated binge eating episodes, um, it's gonna be super important that you stay away from that temptation to restrict again because you're so uncomfortable or because you need to quote unquote make up for that binge because that's only going to set you up for another binge and then that frequent those frequency of those binges is going to eventually accumulate to you constantly gaining weight and then all the other metabolic um, negative adaptations that come with chronic overfeeding and things like that so over time, how like we hear it and we say it and we preach it all the time, like, hey, we have to make dieting. And honestly, any phase, even if it's a maintenance, it's got to be sustainable for your current lifestyle. Um, and that can fluctuate from year to year, month to month, whatever it may be, your current situation. But how are you trying to portray that sustainability um, to your clients and allow them to think long term rather than the short term uh, three month goal of, hey, I have to hit this number on the scale. I have to look a certain way. What message are you trying to elaborate to your clients and maybe even sometimes yourself? Yeah, it's, um, I definitely try to encourage my clients to like, think about why they have that goal. So for example, if someone has a goal of losing 20 pounds in two months, um, okay, we have to look at what it's going to take to do that. It might be super aggressive. It might be tons of cardio. It might be, you know, very little calories, something that's not sustainable. What are you going to do after that? You hit the, those 20 pounds. Are you going to be able to do two hours of cardio 
for the rest of your life because you're going to be very frustrated with yourself once you do all that hard work and you lose all that weight just to gain it all back and sometimes even more with a very common like fat overshooting. So if we have a goal of kind of losing fat unsustainably or too fast or whatever, we have to think about, okay, what's it going to look like to get there? And can you do that for the rest of your life? Because whatever you can do for the rest of your life is going to allow you to maintain a body composition that you're super comfortable in, but also live your life, you know, not be tied to six Tupperwares a day or not always be tied to tracking macros um, in an app all day long. And so for me, that looks like thinking about what you can do forever and making sure that that is going to be sustainable. And then also just thinking about, okay, if there's a certain number we're chasing, what's the importance of that number? What, what's going to be the difference between me getting down to 128 and 125? Because especially females, they'll be like, so focused on, I have to get down to like 118. Okay. What's so special about that number? Let's focus more so on how you look and, and you might look good or better at like five pounds heavier. Um, and then let's also focus more on how you feel in training because you can look great, but if you feel like crap all the time, you're not going to want to do anything. You're not going to want to go out with your friends and live a fulfilling life. So kind of focusing more on getting away from maybe dieting down uh, and chasing a quantitative goal in terms of, I have to be this way. I have to lose this many pounds and focusing on quality of life. What can we do forever? Um, where do I feel my best and where do I feel like I look my best? And it might not always be tied to a specific number. Got it. No, I love that. Something that if ever somebody comes at me with, Hey, it's an objective goal like that. I, I, I will almost, and I'm not sure you guys maybe agree with me, but sometimes I will literally give a client what they want just to show them that's not at all what they needed. Yeah. Um, and I love to, you know, have like midpoint check-ins of like, okay, Hey, right? You said you want to lose 20 pounds. Okay. Here's what you look at at five. And here's what you look big before. What is the differences or what have we built that you haven't had before? Um, just so again, they can learn to zoom out and understand, Hey, this is where you were. And this is where we're currently at now. Let's continuously build off these little things that we can, okay, Hey, let's have another self-reevaluation at the 10 pound mark. And maybe like you said, Nina is you almost come to the realization, like, holy shit, like I actually look really good with just this 10 pounds and I'm happy with my quality of life. And now I don't have to have be fixated on that data point of just the scale. Um, but I guess, you know, something that I have kind of run into a lot and Nina, I, again, I consider you one of my mentors that I will ask anything and everything to is what are you doing for male or female? They come to you. It's still like they're in a, a relatively good spot um, caloric rounds, let's say for a male, 2000 calories. Um, but his dieting history, and in my opinion, when I've had these conversations, a lot of red flags are in my head from just the way he's speaking, but he's still fixated. It's like, coach, like I'm, I'm way too heavy. You know, I'm uncomfortable. I need to lose this body fat. What are you doing to, I guess, either zoom out or honestly, I'll be completely honest with what I did. I was like, okay, Hey, we'll go ahead and start a fat loss phase, but understand if you're not responding again, I'm, kind of giving him what he wants, but maybe it's not what he needs, but yeah. to understand that he can go through that experience and understand that, okay, maybe coach was right. We need to go the opposite direction. And I still feed him every check. And I was like, Hey, maybe we're not, this might not be exactly what we need, but understand, Hey, we're still down a pound or a pound and a half. It going slow and steady. But when, once we burn out and it's not sustainable for us, we need to increase calories. So again, you can increase quality of life, 
your intensity and effort, just movement within your lifestyle is going to pick up. And that in itself is a, a huge plus. So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I know that was a long-winded question. Yeah. Um, no, I think you made a really good point. I think that those individuals who are like coach, like I have to lose this body fat or I have to lose this number of pounds, what I would do to kind of, um, and they have those red flags that maybe they've spent too much time dieting or recently came off of a diet, um, but are currently presenting as they might be in a normal spot, but they haven't spent enough time at that spot to allow their metabolism to adapt because our metabolisms are adaptive, right? So the more we eat, the more our metabolic rate will tend to increase. And the same thing goes for the other direction. The longer we diet, our metabolisms will essentially start to slow down. So if they have those red flags with dieting history, but they are still super hyper-focused on the need to continue to diet and lose body fat, even if they might not be in the best position, um, according to recent dieting history, I would try my best <laughs> to have them focus on other aspects outside of aesthetics. Um, that doesn't always work, right? Like you said, some people are hell bent on dieting. And so you might have to give them that wiggle room and say, okay, let's try this. And if this doesn't work, I'm only willing to take your calories so low, um, as your coach and wanting to always have your best interests first and making sure that we're doing things the healthy way. Um, well, let's agree that we're going to aim for this. And if we're not seeing progress after this many calories cut or this, you know, this much time, then we're going to go the other direction. And so if, we, if I can't get them away from that, then I'll say, let's focus a bit more on goals outside of aesthetics. Um, maybe it's a performance goal around like doing a powerlifting meet, like how strong can we get? Um, or maybe they want to kind of change things up and do like an obstacle race and, and focus a bit more on um, endurance-based uh, sports and things like that. And sometimes I find that to be really helpful to just kind of not distract them, but kind of change their perspective and change their focus on chasing another goal. Because it's a lot of those people are hyper-focused. A lot of those people are, are goal-driven and they're like, I have to lose this many pounds or I have to get down to this weight or I have to be this lean. And it might not always be optimal for them. Obviously there's a time and place, but if you've done that so often, there's going to be a point where your body kind of taps out and we need to switch direction. So if we just simply need to fulfill that craving of chasing a goal. Then we just choose another goal that is an aesthetic space and is more performance based. And then as you then alluded to, we might increase calories, which in turn would increase our training performance. And then we kind of get this positive feedback loop of you eat more, you train harder and better, and then your body composition actually benefits from that. And that's kind of where we have those people who tend to eat more or eat more intuitively and they actually lose body fat because they're able to train harder and essentially burn more calories, put on a little bit more muscle. That's kind of where I like to refer to as that like magic place in the off season or not dieting um, position is when, okay, we're actually looking better because we're not dieting because we're eating more because we're training harder. So something you mentioned is you, there's, as a coach, there's a certain there's a certain point that you don't want to bring calories down to, or you won't bring them lower than that. How do you, how do you judge how low those calories are? Because I've heard a few different sayings. Um, I've found a few different ones. I stick to one. I'm not going to say what it is because I want to hear your input on, on it. So generally for some individuals, I can kind of just tell from their height and weight where they need to be at 
or what they shouldn't go below. Um, however, there are some people who survive just fine on much lower than we would expect, um, whether it's genetics based, whether it's like just their dieting history since they were a kid, um, et cetera. So I would kind of try to find a, a, like a, a medium between both and kind of see, okay, what has your dieting history looked like in the past, like five years? What, where has your average been? And, you know, how have you felt at those points? Um, and people will generally be able to tell like at a certain number of calories, I just feel lethargic all the time, or I can't sleep at night because I'm so hungry. Um, when, the number of calories we eat start to kind of impact other areas of our life, like say outside of a contest prep, because at that point you're just focused on getting on stage and looking the best when it comes to just general dieting. When your diet starts to impact your sleep, starts to impact your ability to focus, starts to impact, you know, maybe being able to make simple decisions at work, that's too low. And so not only will I go by maybe the quantitative amounts of, okay, this person is this height and size, their weight, their calories shouldn't be below this number. I'll also look at the biofeedback. You know, they're at a low like calorie range, but they still feel completely fine. They're hitting PR somehow and things like that. Then I'll be like, okay, like this is normal for them. And then those people will tend to kind of be those outliers. And I can take them a little bit lower outside of what would be the norm for someone their um, weight and height. Yeah, because your turn. Yeah. Turn, so Chris. yeah, the approach I take is actually an approach that I learned off a, a David Mathis from, I'm sure you're aware of him from BioLane. And that's what I was wondering your input is because he goes off of the caloric floor. So I was wondering, I've never gotten Lane's uh, input on this or nor have I been able to see it on online or anything, but taking an individual's um, um, body mass, figuring, removing, figuring it out, their lean body mass. So you subtract their body fat uh, and then you divide it by 2.2 2, uh, or divide it. Yeah. 2.2 to get kilograms. And then when you have their lean body mass in kilograms, multiply that by 18 to 20. And it gives you generally a number that is a very low amount. And I tried looking at the research based off of this number as well. And a lot of the physiological uh, adaptations like reduced sleep, uh, less thyroid functioning, those type of things start to occur at this range. Like it's an almost guarantee that you're going to start to see physiological detriments because of it. So that's what I took. But also you brought up a very good point that I mentioned before this podcast. Like I just love getting other people's opinion because one, one's person, one person's normal is going to be different than another person's normal. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you mentioned a really good point. Someone might be hitting PRs at their caloric, their quote unquote caloric floor, which I'll go off of for uh, a quantitative number. But if someone's hitting PRs at their caloric floor, like that is a money spot for their calories. So what's stopping us from going a little bit lower if they're, if they're performing well, they're doing really well at this very low amount, we could probably push them a little bit harder. So that is a very good yeah, factor to keep in mind and that's in the context of you know like if if someone is in a situation where they need to lose more body fat right if we if we don't have to get lower if it's not necessary but another uh very specific case because people are very different physiologically and i think equations can be really great 
but there are so many other variables that accumulate over someone's you know, very specific life that will change that need. So I have a client, for example, who has had a third of her digestive system removed and she is, she's just not able to handle really more than 1100 calories a day. And we just got her on stage. She's extremely muscular somehow just has this amazing capacity to maintain muscle mass. But, you know, we had to get her down to 700 calories and not once she's like, I'm never hungry. And at first I was like, oh man, like I'm very uncomfortable with taking someone this low, especially with someone with this much muscle, she's going to lose all that muscle, but that I've been working for her with her for three years now. And so I have a good understanding on her max is pretty much 1300 calories and that's it. Um, she's had a lot of surgeries since she was a kid with her digestive system and, and things like that go on hormonally. Um, so that is a very specific case in which maybe that equation might not apply to her, but I would say for most healthy people. Yeah, of course. I think, I think that is definitely, especially if the research is there on it, that is appropriate. Yeah. And just to highlight your point there, Nina, and even Chris, that you're taking consideration the biofeedback the client provides you because sometimes, and I felt, I felt uh, fault to it early on in my coaching career. It was like, this low number is like, it was always relative to me. I was like, whoa, like 1800 calories. Whoa. Like that's really low. Cause for me and Nina can vouch, like I can lose like a half a pound to a pound, even sometimes two pounds on 350 plus grams of carbs. And you were yeah. always amazed with that. Was like, and I asked her, I was like, why do you think that you're like, Adam, you don't diet often, but when you do diet, like you have a huge like bank to bank off of. Yeah. Um, so I think like you, said, you don't diet often <laughs> that you yeah. respond so well. And I think that like, especially I think like females in the competitive world, like just need to take a lesson from that. You need to diet less um, in order to have that uh, improved response. And yeah. now, now I want to kind of get your opinion on that in my back, Chris, but you know, I've even come to you at a, an intuitive eating uh, aspect in this RPE chart that I found online was like, what are your opinion on this intuitive eating? Cause I remember you threw something at me and I almost was like, hold up, what an untracked meal, an untracked day. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Um, but it made me feel really good. And I learned a lot from that because literally that's how I operate now is I have pretty much the same foods. Honestly, right now, all I do is track my protein and calories and making sure that, hey, I'm eating because right now my life is so busy. Sometimes I don't eat. So just having that mental awareness of, hey, I don't have to be super specific, but just give me a protein going a calorical. And now most of the time I'm just on autopilot. Uh, but what is your opinion on the whole intuitive eating, and I would call it la la land, because um, I'm not a huge proponent of it, but I want to hear what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I think that there is a time and place for everything. So there's a time and place for people to track their calories, to track their macros and to eat a bit more intuitively. And Adam, like you might be in a place where, especially coming up, you're going to be doing your PhD. Um, you know, you're going to likely be working and you're going to be pretty busy. So you might not be in a position to track every single macro down to the gram. And it might be a little bit more easier for you. Obviously I'm just speaking purely on assumption. You can tell me if I'm wrong to just track calories and just track protein, or maybe not track anything at all. And just have these habit goals in the back of your mind. So I'm definitely a proponent for intuitive eating for individuals who are at that place. So if I could take things on a spectrum, uh, individuals who should be tracking macros and calories are those who are competing to a very specific body fat goal or someone who just has a very time sensitive body fat and weight goal. 
Um, or someone who knows nothing about food. I think tracking macros is a great way to gain that awareness for food and should be used as a tool to eventually set them up to be able to eat intuitively and understand like, oh, this is high protein, this is high carb, this is low fat, this is what I need in this specific meal. And so the way I look at intuitive eating is I kind of think like that's the end goal for, for most gen pop people to be able to make healthy choices um, without being tied to a tracking app 24 seven or without being tied to a calorie goal and, and getting better at listening to all of their uh, specific physiological biofeedback. So if I could kind of say my uh, opinion generally on tracking versus intuitive eating, I think that tracking macros is a great short-term tool and it should set you up to be able to intuitively eat and make healthy choices depending on where you are in terms of performance-based goals, aesthetics-based goals, or just if you're just trying to maintain a specific body weight and for whatever reason you can't exercise for a while. Um, I'm a huge proponent of intuitive eating because I don't think everyone should track macros or track calories for the rest of their life. Um, and then oftentimes people forget how to eat. They forget how to eat when they're hungry and they forget how to stop eating when they're full. Um, and so I think that it's super important, even if you are tracking, say, 365 days a year to maybe like take those days to practice. Okay. What is it like to just listen to my body? And what is it like to just eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full? Yeah. And I think it's really important because the way you worded that is you, in order to intuitive eat, you, you sort of got to learn how to eat in general. Like mm -hmm. if you don't know how to consistently eat the same amount, then how are you supposed to know what your hunger cues are? Um, something that I'll try to utilize with people just to get them their hunger cues back is like setting up meal times. So like, it's not super important for like making goals and stuff like that. But when you're not getting hunger cues, just simply eating something the second you wake up at the same time every day, it's going to start to program your body to get hungry at that time. So yeah. in order to intuitive eat, I think it's extremely important to first know how to eat and you do that by sort of learning how to track and learning how to operate your body in a way that your body is happy with. Yeah, I would attribute my ability to successfully maintain where I am weight-wise for the past two to three years intuitively to the seven years I spent tracking very consistently because I can just look at something and I can be like, that's roughly four ounces of chicken. That's as much protein I need in a single bolus. I can move on with my day and not freak out about it or have to like track it in an app. So I'm so happy you said that because that's something that I say all the time. And just to reference our beginning point where I was like, I panicked when I overate something because I had no idea what I actually consumed of. Yeah. It took me from my junior year of undergrad to all the way to like maybe a year ago to be like, okay, man, like you got the hold of this. I can look at it and eyeball it. Hey, it's probably a roundabout. But again, that time and that consistency and more importantly, that patience of, you know, going through that education of understanding this is what a fat, this is what a carb, and this is, you know, X amount of, uh, I guess, whatever consu you're consuming is really important. You have to kind of go through that struggle a little bit to yeah. be able to be comfortable. And I hate the word intuitive eating. I always say it's more an educational eating approach yeah. because now, again, you're educated, you understand what a protein, carb, fat is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you also made, uh, I think it was maybe a, a few weeks ago, a really good post that I think we need to let uh, shed some light on is right. 
when you hit a sticking point in a fat loss phase, you don't need to immediately start slashing calories. And I'm going to just shut up now and allow you to elaborate. What are those things uh, that you should actually start to do or look to do when you hit a sticking point in a fat loss phase? Yeah. So hopefully I can remember it uh, to the T, but I think I have them off the top of my head. So before you think about like slashing your calories again, what other things can we look to uh, changing first? So I always try to go for the lowest hanging fruit. What would be easiest? Because when we always turn to cutting calories, we run into the issues of, okay, you're going to start to be a lot more hungry. You're going to run a bigger risk of losing muscle mass at this point with the less calories. So the goal for any fat loss phase or any cutting phase should always be to try to lose weight on as many calories as possible and as little cardio as possible to maintain that hard earned muscle mass. And for me, muscle is like gold because that's going to be the biggest factor in maintaining a higher metabolic rate to allow us to um, respond to a caloric deficit. So what are some other things that we might want to pay closer attention to, to help us lose weight that is not inclusive of eating less or maybe even uh, doing more cardio. So I'd say first things first is like, how, how accurate are you tracking your food? Some people will start fat loss phases and they'll be pretty loose with it, but you know, a few bites of a cookie here and there at the end of the week will add up. Um, to, you know, sometimes an extra 500 calories and that 500 calories is the difference over the whole week is the difference between a pound or a half a pound lost. Um, so just making sure that if you are in a, a specific fat loss phase with a specific timeline, just making sure that you're tracking accurately so you can get in and out and over with, right. And we don't want to spend too much time dieting. Uh, second one is sleep. Uh, sleep has such a significant impact on our metabolic health. You know, are you sleeping enough and are you getting good quality of sleep? Um, we'll look at, you know, what does your uh, evening winding down routine look like? Cause that'll ultimately impact maybe not how long you sleep, but how soon you get into those deep wave sleeps that is super important for overall, you know, recovery um, and metabolic health. And then another thing that happens with dieting after a while specifically is neat. So non-exercise um, activity, thermogenesis. Um, typically when people diet for a long time, they get tired, right? So they'll tend to move less. They'll just generally get less steps throughout the day. They might sit more rather than stand. And so for those people, I'll say, okay, let's look at, you know, how have our, our steps changed? Are we still going for those post-meal 10 minute walks? Um, are we making it, uh, a, a goal to, you know, maybe, if someone is sitting at a desk nine hours a day, are we getting up, you know, maybe once every hour for five minutes and moving around? That's definitely something that might come into play. Um, NEAT has a, I think a, a bigger impact than a lot of people think when it comes to body composition. Um, and then another thing I think is, is meal timing. So if we are saving all of our calories for, or a majority of our calories for right before bed, um, I would say, Calories in versus calories out is definitely a big part of the equation, but carbohydrate timing and when you might be the most or least insulin sensitive is also going to play an impact on how well your body can utilize the carbohydrates you intake um, for energy or whether it'll store more of those calories for body fat. And so I think that meal timing throughout the day is, is another big one that people might overlook. Um, not only for that, but also for satiety purposes, because if we're spacing out our meals, um, correctly, especially protein, we can be more full throughout the day. That'll make the dieting process a little bit easier and it will mitigate maybe any feeling 
of overeating or being so hungry at the end of the day because we ate most of our calories at the beginning of the day that we can't sleep, which will then further impact our, our body composition with um, lesser quality of sleep. So I would say those are the, the main things should be, you know, meal timing, neat, uh, how accurate we are um, tracking our food and sleep. If there's one on this, let me know. <laughs> no, I mean, there's technically one that you put on because I just pulled it up was like stress management. Um, and I think yeah. again, that's more of something that is inevitably what we are doing in a deficit. Um, and I think we can kind of, you can agree with, you know, diet breaks, refeeds, you know, the psychological adherence part is also a key part with that. Uh, but just wanted to really highlight, you know, that meal timing. And that's something that I really, one, I started to experiment with myself. And then two, after listening to the Huberman podcast of, you know, really starting to time your carbohydrates to later at night that allow that serotonin to kind of pick up and that deeper quality of sleep. Um, that has been key for me. And like that circadian rhythm, as Chris was talking about, like, okay, hey, going to be more protein awareness in like, you know, my morning and afternoon. And my, again, having carbohydrates later at night to help facilitate deeper quality sleep, but just having, Hey, okay, it's 12 o'clock. I need to go eat something because now I'm on like that, uh, that, that autopilot of, right. Even if I'm not hungry, I'm consuming calories because that's always something that I screwed up on. Um, and just evenly tried to spread out my calories. So the satiety is always there. Um, and I'm not feeling myself, uh, getting like brain fog or more hungry than needed. Yeah. Definitely. So we're going to hit a new outro way instead of three books, instead of, well, you'll be able to touch on where they can find you after we're going to talk about a topic that we know a little about. And we asked Karina before this podcast, what was one thing she would want to know about more? And it's something that Adam and I also know nothing about <laughs> topic is finance. So let's talk about why you want to know more about finance. Okay. I mean, just think about it. If you knew <laughs> as much about money as you do about nutrition and training, like how good in a position you would you be in? So yeah, I mean, my knowledge on finance is I think more common sense, right? Like you maybe shouldn't <laughs> spend before you earn, save your money and, you know, maybe don't, don't blow money on, on silly things. Um, but I think that like, I would really want to learn more about, I mean, I know what the stock market is before people start like making throw up noises. Like I'm not like totally <laughs> dumb. I know what the stock market is, but I would like to understand kind of like the intricacies on what changes uh, the economy um, and how I could, I guess, um, optimize my finances overall. I would say like, cause obviously there are, there are experts in everything. And I just kind of like, imagine like, what do like, investment bankers know that I don't know yeah. like finances like it's probably like they're in the weeds like we are in the weeds like with nutrition and training and yeah so there, there's two things that come to my mind uh as you said those things the first thing is have you ever heard or read the book called rich dad poor dad I have heard of it because uh my dad has that book, but I haven't read it <laughs> so something in that book that they really identify and that whole entire book is sort of like the, the foundation of it is what the rich teach their kids that the poor doesn't. And something that is mentioned in that book is you should never not pay yourself first. So you should, you should always focus on yourself first before 
spending money on your bills, et cetera. Because with you being a coach, someone that's very reliant on their own work ethic to make money, if you need money with your intelligence and your work ethic, I am very confident that you'd be able to figure out a way to make money if you were in a dire need to. Now, something that I personally, because I know nothing about finance, so that's why I read books. Um, one thing I started doing, because we're exercising nutrition coaches, what do we tell our clients that they need to do to help educate themselves about what they're doing? And we've talked about it so far, and that's tracking food. So my exercise knowledge part was like, what if I just start tracking every single time I buy something? Yeah. And that alone like we see it in like the research environment. If people are taught to track something, they're going to change their habits. So like, yeah. as I started tracking my spending, my swipes, I'm like, I'm not going to stop at the gas station right here. <laughs> I'm going to have to get my phone out and do more work. Yeah. Um, but that's just one thing I've done, but I haven't stuck with it. And consistency is another big thing. Nice. So I guess, you know, things that I've done, um, to help with, you know, my financial situation is one, I have a really good friend and I can put you in touch with him. Tristan Ficaro, he's a fucking genius, literally yeah. is got a calculator in his fucking brain. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he works at an insurance company. I can't even say his major in undergrad because it's that fucking crazy. Um, but I have the Acorns app and I'm sure you guys may be familiar with it. And it's I've just it. like, yeah, it's literally just takes out $20 each week from my account. I don't even think about it. Um, and it invents, it invests it in the stock market. Um, and I have it set to aggressive because right, we're young. It's always going to rise no matter what the stock market we've always seen it generally rise and peak. Um, anytime and every time I get some type of financial gain, 15 to 30% goes into a savings account. And my savings account is ally bank. Although the interest rate is completely shit right now. Um, it's better than nothing. Um, I'd rather accumulate $3, $5 from it sitting there. Um, but I do plan on hopefully getting an actual financial advisor, um, to accumulate all that. But as you said, tracking it, um, and just always saving something rather than nothing, um, is huge. But Dave Ram, David Ramsey is somebody that I've followed and really try to hear him out. um, Yeah. I use his every dollar app. Um, it's just like, it's like a tracking app like tracking mm-hmm. your calories, but tracking your money. And it tracks like everything I spend and it helps me budget and all those things. But what, what's this app called? Every dollar. Every dollar. Yeah. So something I've wanted to learn more about is the stock market itself. And I was trying to figure out how can I learn more about it without like spending money on a coach or someone to teach me or like a course or something like I'm not that invested right now. I got a lot of other things I'm trying to focus on, but there's actually uh, organizations, groups, et cetera. And I know it's in Tampa. I could put you in, but you're in Orlando. Um, But there's groups that do like monthly meetups and they just talk about stock market. So it's like a socializing group. You don't pay for it. Uh, I think you might pay like 15, $20 for the seat for the event because like there's food provided um, to help out with that. Um, but it's, it's for anyone from beginning to experts and they just, they talk about stuff. And I think that within itself is something important because if (laughs) relate this to a language, you don't know, if you don't surround yourself by a language, you're not going to learn it myself, like included right now, I want to learn Spanish, but I know no one that speaks Spanish, like 
So like, yeah. how, how hard is it going to be for me to speak Spanish? Yeah. Well, I speak Spanish, so I can help okay. you. <laughs> I speak Spanish. And that's the same, that's the funny part. Cause like I was fluent as hell at ACL or ASL. Um, yeah. And I was surrounded by all the time with my grandmother, but ever since she passed, like I'm very bad at it now, which I, it pisses me off. So I need to pick that up. Um, I think another thing too, and this is something just watching like basic YouTube channels is um, use your credit card almost as a debit card. Cause a lot of those, they give you cash back if you certain, if you spend a certain threshold. And that's what I've done with my capital one card is I treat it like a debit card, but I pay it off immediately. So I don't get hit with that interest rate. Um, But now I got like $600 in cash back over a year and a half. So that's something else that now I don't feel maybe sometimes as guilty of, you know, going to the grocery store and getting food or going yeah. out to eat. It's like, okay, hey, I'm spending, but I'm also making a little bit back out of it. So, yeah. but I have no idea anything about the stock market. Me neither. I think uh, another uh, good uh, resource that I think a lot of people could easily follow on Instagram that I really like that I just started following like maybe a month ago is the financial diet. Um, they post like a lot of really interesting um, just tips and hacks and, and just things you should know about money. So, so it, from the sounds of it, you, you seem, when you said it, you seem very ignorant on the topic, but really you are like on your way to being an expert. I feel like, <laughs> no, well, I feel like on everything, including in the realm of like nutrition and training, there's still so much I don't know. Um, and I think that's just like side effect of being a scientist. Like the more you learn, like the less, you know, so I just feel yeah. like so when you asked me to pick something, I was like, oh man, I don't know about a lot of things. Which one do I pick? Yeah. So where, we where- all experienced that. I was like, man, we, we spent a lot of time on, like I, I, we, I said it to Buckner. I was like, I spent a lot of time on this specific topic. If you ask me anything else other side of Pokemon and lifting, I feel like I live under a rock. I don't know a damn thing. <laughs> so we appreciate you coming on, Karina. Uh, it was a pleasure finally meeting you. Like Adam said, he speaks highly of you all the time. Where can our listeners find you or your coaching services through Loco? Yeah. So um, on, I'm on Instagram mainly, uh, just my name at Karina Naboa. And then um, I don't really use any other <laughs> social media platform. So you can also inquire for coaching on our team local fit website. You can find a lot of articles that I've written other podcasts that I've done with our own team. Um, if you're, you know, kind of interested in, in those topics and things like that, but yeah, on Instagram at Karina Naboa and just on our team local fit website. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's absolutely been a pleasure. Um, and I really appreciate the time to talk with you guys. Hey, and that's all the smoke with Karina. If you don't know who she is, you better now know who the fuck she is because she's about to blow up as a researcher um, in this field. So Nina, again, thank you so much. And we'll probably have to have you back and talk talk shop when you know things kind of explode up with your girl. So thank you so much. And we will look forward to hearing back from you soon.